Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. This passage that Catherine just read is one of the most exciting, joyous passages in Scripture, right? (laughs) I couldn't wait to preach on this passage because it is just so uh, awesome. Uh, Now, this is, uh, if you're in BOG this week, how our body life groups, our small groups during the week, how we structure them is is all our BOGs are reading through 1 Corinthians, and we preach about it on the Sunday following the, the BOG when you talk about it. So all of our BOGs this week talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, leading up to uh, the sermon today. And in our BOG, it was, it was different. It was, it was a little uh, uneasy talking about this passage. There were a lot of questions. We were like, well, what about this and what about this? And so you might be feeling that today after we just read it. If you haven't read this passage, if this is maybe the first time you've heard it, it seems like, oh, what are we talking about today? Uh, well, if you see the, the, the banner here, it's, it's sin, which is kind of just a quick story. Reagan and I were walking past this store the other day at Young and Egg, and um, there's a big open sign, and then there's a little tiny open sign like this. And, she, and Reagan's my five-year-old. And she was like, oh, look, Daddy, how cute. There's a little baby open sign. And it's, she's like, it's like saying, open. <laughs> so if you look at our sign, it's like, we're almost little too noisy. We're like, sin. We're not like, we're talking about sin today. It's like, whoever wrote that is like, uh, just, we don't want to put it forward too much. Uh, but that's, so, <laughs> that's what we're talking about today. We're going to. We're going to rethink sin and what it means for the church. And over, as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, we've done this through a whole, with a whole bunch of topics. We've talked about rethink identity, rethink destiny, rethink influence, rethink uh, discipleship, two Sundays of that. Rethink, um, I don't know, anything else? There are like 10 other topics. But a whole bunch of other ones in there throughout the book of 1 Corinthians and now we're in chapter five, and we're talking about rethinking sin. And there's, and it's a big deal. Sin, sin is a big deal. That's why Jesus had to uh, come down in the form of flesh and sacrifice himself for us, because it was a big deal. And he says it's going to take something that's an even bigger deal to overcome that. And so that's, that's what he does for us. And think, think about this. So uh, a couple years ago, we took the girls, the girls are probably three and four at, at this time, to the aquatic center in Regent Park. And if you've been to the aquatic center, it's a city facility, it's nice, it's free, but because of that, it's nice and free, uh, it's packed almost all the time. And so it's, there are tons of people in there, we were there with the girls, we wanted to ch- start teaching them how to swim. But it was so packed, we couldn't actually swim. So we're just kind of like waiting around and splashing around. It was still fun. And all of a sudden, we're having fun. All of a sudden, someone says, 
there's throw up in the pool. What do you think happens? No, yeah, I mean, you think everyone was like, oh, that's no big deal. Let's, let's keep on, let's just keep swimming, just keep swimming. No, they're, they're, it was like everyone freaked out. Everyone tried to get out of the pool as, as quickly as possible. There was a rush to the showers because there are the showers there where you want to wash yourself off and there's soap, everyone's using soap because some kid threw up in the pool. Um, also, this, this past week, I don't know if you guys saw, there's a Coca-Cola plant in Ireland and they found human waste in some empty cans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, how many of you guys would say, based on your faces, you wouldn't say this, but how many of you guys would say, oh, just take it out? Yeah, and then put Coke in it. I'll still drink out of it. It's not a big deal. Nobody would say that. Okay, we'd say, let's burn those cans. Let's get rid of them. They have no place. That's what they did. They shut the factory down, and they cleaned everything out. Um, this is where we are in 1 Corinthians. We're at a place where there's supposed to be something that's pure. It's supposed to be pure. And human waste has got into the church. Someone's thrown up in the pool. And Paul's like, everybody scramble. We got to take drastic measures. Like something has to happen because if it doesn't, it's just going to contaminate everything. And everybody's going to be drinking nasty Coke. Like, and we don't want that. And the church here at this point is in a very nascent form. It's a very young church. It's the only church in Corinth. It is only a few years old. And it's, it's growing. But something like this has the potential to completely derail what God has been doing there because of one person's sexual immorality, as, as Paul calls it at the beginning of, of the chapter here. So if you don't remember any statement, the rest of today, I want you to remember this statement, is that the purity of the church portrays the power of the gospel. The purity of the church portrays the power of the gospel. When I say power there, if you're new to church, if you're new to the Christian faith, this is your first time in church, power there is, is, is we, we bring in our own connotations of power, right? But power is uh, just talking about the capability of the gospel, the ability of the gospel, the, the efficacy, the effectiveness of the gospel. This is what the power of the gospel is, is referring to here. And the purity of the church shows this to the world. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you're part of something a lot bigger than yourself. So your individual sin actually has the potential to have a corporate effect, a collective effect on the rest of the church. And this is why so many people in the church or outside of the church say, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Like they say we should live like that, but, but they don't live like that. Look at them. They're just like us. It's because we're not, we're not as concerned about the purity of the church. And sin is so serious that Jesus gave his life up for it, for us. And it took his blood, him dying, him being humbled in the form of a servant, obedient to the point of death on a cross to cleanse us of that. And Paul is saying, you're trampling over all of this. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So the purity of the church portrays the power of the gospel. We're going to take that throughout this entire passage. And hopefully, 
mitigate and assuage some of your uneasiness around this passage. Because context is king here, guys. We need the context. If we just take this passage and, and talk about it, I, we can totally misconstrue it. We can misconstrue Paul's tone. You can read this passage and, and, say, and, and say that Paul is angry and he's, he's saying he's, he's annoyed or he's frustrated or he's being too mean or however you want to say it. Uh, but uh, that's not the context of this passage. And this is why the last verse before Catherine read um, in chapter 4 says, Paul says this to them. He says, shall I come with you, shall I come at you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And that choice Paul gives them, <laughs> it's kind of funny. He's like, hey, you have the choice, the rod or love <laughs> and the spirit of gentleness. But how it's phrased is that he doesn't, he, he's, the rod isn't actually an, an option at this point. He's saying, look, this is how I'm going to come to you in a spirit of love and a spirit of gentleness. And then he proceeds to do that. And we can also see this by how Paul addresses sin in other areas of, of his writings. In 2 Corinthians, um, I don't know, did, did I put this on the screen, 2 Corinthians? Okay. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul talks about a lot of people think that this is the exact instance he's talking about, but whether it is or, or isn't, isn't relevant um, because it shows you Paul's attitude. He says, he's talking about a sinner. He's talking about someone who, who is living in sin. He says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him so that he won't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, I plead with you, to reaffirm your love for him. This is Paul's overall attitude. We can see this all throughout, all throughout his writings. So now, that's the context. Let's come into here. Verse 1, chapter 5, says it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you. And he says it's not even tolerated among those who are outside of the church. For a man has his father's wife. And Paul is almost more, if not more, annoyed by the fact that the problem for Paul, I think, isn't that, isn't necessarily the sin, it's how the church is treating the sin. And this is verse two. He says, and you are arrogant. You're boasting about it. They make three, three mistakes here. So they're arrogant. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? Like, shouldn't we be sad about this? And then he says, let him who's done this be removed from among you. So the church hasn't done anything about it. They're actually boasting about it. And they're not even saddened by it. They're, they're not mourned by it. And Paul says, let him who's done this be removed from among you. Now that sounds harsh. If we just take that verse, it sounds pretty harsh. Just kick him out. But that's not exactly what is going on here. Okay, so we need the context. We need, we need the rest of it. Yeah, so verse three, verses three and four. He says, for though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as of present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Let's stop there. Um, before we read verse five, which is like the kicker. Um, the one that a lot of people have have problems with. So let's, let's start with verses three and four. So Paul is saying, when you're assembled, you guys need to take care of this. 
And a couple things there. One, Paul is saying, you guys have freedom to do this. I don't have to be there. This isn't necessarily a leadership thing where the, the, the leader comes in and he or she says, nope, we're not having this and we're, we're moving. He's like, no, this is you guys, the church, we are responsible for the maintaining the purity of the church. We're responsible for maintaining the purity of the body because it shows something about who we are. So he says, even though I'm absent, I'm with you guys in spirit. I'm, I'm there with you guys, so just, just go with that. Um, and he says when you're assembled, and this is key, when you guys are together as a church, and this, is, this will help us understand verse 11 later on when Catherine read, um, the one who calls himself a brother or a sister and still lives like the world, you shouldn't even eat with such a one, verse 11 says. So Paul says here, if we're going to move them, don't even eat with such a one. In our, in our culture, we think, oh, that's really harsh. Like, how, how can we, we can't even socialize with somebody? That's not what Paul's talking about. Remember, this is in the context of the church. So this is when the church is assembled, and he's referring to communion. He's referring to the Lord's table. He's referring to the, the Lord's supper that we'll take uh, after the sermon. And that whenever the church gathered, they ate together. They communed together. They remembered the gospel together. They remembered that Christ's body was broken for them together. They celebrated that Christ's blood was shed for them together. And when they did that, they, they dined together. And he, says, and he says, so in verse 11 when he says, you're not even supposed to eat with such a person, it's because they have no belonging at this table because they're just trampling on the, on the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not saying, I mean, I'm pretty sure first century Christianity didn't have an A&W being built across the street. You know, they didn't have a fushimi and a ginger over here. So he's not talking about going out to eat with them. He's, he's not even talking about eating in your home necessarily. He's talking about the Lord's table here. And this becomes even clearer when you read the rest of Paul's letter in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. He says the, the person who approaches the Lord's table and they're living in sin, they're actually pronouncing judgment on themselves. And he says we shouldn't let them do that for their sake. We shouldn't let them do that. He says because if they judge themselves, they would have no need for someone else to judge them. And so he says, look at what you're, what you're doing. That's why the Lord's table is so is introspective. And sometimes we say, hey, get right with the Lord first. Or we encourage you guys to, to make a decision for Christ or to think, to think through it before you actually do this, what can just be a ritual. There's so much significance in the Lord's table that Paul says, if someone's living in sin, you shouldn't eat with them here because they're going to pronounce judgment on themselves. And you don't want that. And we're, and then, so, when he talks about it here, when you're assembled, he's referring to this. And, he, and then he also appeals to Jesus Christ. He appeals, he appeals to Christ's authority. This is Matthew chapter 18. And you can follow along up on the screen. I'm just going to read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15, or a couple verses here. And this is, this is how this would have worked in the early church. So he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
So individuals, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Reconciliation, that's, that's the goal. But if he doesn't, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is the assembly. And if, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now that word Gentile is, is the word for pagan or, or heathen uh, as well. Um, and this, that's the stage we're at in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. All those stages have, have been done already, and now we're at this point where Paul's like, we just need to, for his sake, remove him from the body. And there's, there's a couple reasons why, why we know that's true. One, uh, Paul appeals to Jesus, and two, uh, he talks about in verse 9 a letter that he already wrote to them. Uh, but now the church, remember, they're not even recognizing that this is an issue. They're arrogant about it even, he says. They're not mourning it. They're boasting about it. And this is where verse five comes in. So he says, with the power of our Lord Jesus, and then verse five, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That sounds pretty bad. Um, yeah. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So there's two reasons for delivering this, this person as Satan. And Paul uses this phrase in another point in the scriptures in, in the book of 1 Timothy for a guy named Alexander and a guy named Hymenaeus. And so it's, it's a phrase that appears somewhere else. And so Paul says, deliver them to Satan for two reasons. The destruction of their flesh, and this flesh is referring to their sinful nature. It's not saying so that they die. It's referring to their sinful nature, right? Which is, as we're in Christ and growing in Christ, that's happening. We're dying to ourselves. Our old selves are, are, are being uh, crucified with Christ so that we would live, right? These are common verses that Paul has written. And, and also, he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So with the death comes life. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. And the destruction of the flesh as he's saying that the sinful nature of this, of this person in particular, but of all of us who are following Jesus, needs to be overcome by the Spirit and needs to be destroyed. And sometimes there comes a point where someone just persists and persists and persists in their sin to the point where you can't do anything else. You've tried to point them to Jesus. You've tried to show them the error of their ways. You, you, you've, you've talked to them individually. You've taken a couple of people with them. You've brought them before the church, and they're still saying, no. No, this is how, how, I, how I want it. And then he says, sometimes, Paul references this also in, in Romans 1, sometimes you just have to give them over to the fleeting desires of their flesh so that they can see the futility of their efforts and be saved in the end, and receive life in the end. When I was 16, I got my driver's license, and um, I was crazy. I was reckless, and some of you guys who have ridden with me would say that's still the case, but I'm a lot more controlled now. Um, yeah, I was just, 
you shouldn't give 16-year-olds licenses. <laughs> I would totally change that law. Like, it, it just, and some of it has changed. When I, when I was growing up, they just hand you a license. Now they do permits, all that stuff. Here we got your G's and all that. I don't, I don't understand the G's, but yeah, one, two, three, is that, oh, that's pretty easy. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, now they have permits and all that, so you ride, have to ride supervised, you can only do it during certain times, whatever. But when I was 16, it was like, here you go, and here's the car, go have fun. So I had lots of run-ins with the law. I had lots of speeding tickets, no accidents ever, but lots of tickets, lots of, and I just kept on messing up. And my dad was awesome. He would just, he, he just helped me out, you know, and, and he, and I worked so I could use my own money, but, but he was very gracious. He's trying to teach me. So he'd help me pay off, he'd help me pay the tickets, he'd help me pay lawyers. I was still on his car insurance, so he's helped me pay insurance. He was very, I don't know why, because that's not my dad, <laughs> but he was very, I, I guess he's just trying to teach me, and instead of saying, give me your license, give me your car, and, and cutting me off, he was saying, look, you need to learn how to drive like this, you need to, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he was very gracious until the day of reckoning came. And this, I, I can still picture it. So I'm driving on this two-lane road, and speed limit's about 60, and um, I'm going at least double that, maybe 150, and it's a two-lane road. I was late for work. This was the day before I was gonna fly out to go to Thailand for a month with my family. And I'm like 19, and, or maybe younger. Uh, no, I'm like 19 or 20 or something. And uh, I go past on this two-lane road. I just left my parents' house, and I'm going to work. And, and as I go by, um, a cop passes me going the other direction. And I was like, oh, shoot. But guess who's behind the cop? My dad, <laughs> coming home from work. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like the cop, uh, my dad, uh-oh. Um, in front of my dad, the cop just pulls a U-turn, like, in the middle of the road, like crazy. I mean, yeah, it was. And so I'm going over this bridge. Anyways, the cop ends up pulling me over. My dad sees the whole thing. I know he sees the whole thing. So I'm at work thinking, oh my gosh, my dad, we're going out of the country for a month tomorrow. I hope he doesn't tell my mom. It's going to ruin her trip, whatever. Um, and uh, that, the bad part, though, was I barely made it to work because when they finally pulled me over, I got hit with speeding, reckless endangerment, evading the police. Uh, he thought I was drunk. He was gonna get me, I wasn't wearing, I have contacts, but on my license is any corrective. He was like gonna get me on that, like everything. I just, I don't know why he didn't take my license right there, because they can do that. Um, but he didn't, it was this whole deal. I was like an hour late for work. Um, I had to go to court, uh, I had to go to a trial. Um, I was, had my license taken away, and this is because I had so many other offenses, right? I had my license taken away, and it's not funny, this is, <laughs> 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 have my license taken away, um, 
and had to do community service. Uh, and it was only 24 hours community service, but 24 hours is a lot, especially when you're in, in university and you're trying to like get with the ladies and stuff. Like <laughs> you can, community service does not get you the ladies. And <laughs> so all that, and I finally, that was the breaking point for me. And my dad was like, he wasn't angry. He was like, this is all, you gotta clean this up. This is all you. Uh, he stepped back from it. And he kind of just said, hey, this is, you need to take responsibility. He's like, don't tell your mom. <laughs> you will ruin her trip. Um, just, and he stepped away from it and kind of cleaned his hands of it. And I was humiliated. My mom had to take me to work. She had to take me to social events. She had to like take, take me to class. Um, it was, it was humiliating. We didn't live in a city like this where you have transit and stuff. And like, hey, mom, drop me off like over there. She's like, nope. <laughs> Everyone's gonna see your foolishness. And uh, that's, that's what's happening in this situation. They've tried and tried to tell this person, this is not the way to go. This is not the right way. And now they've said, we got to cut you off. You have to see for yourself the futility of your ways. You have to see for yourself how fleeting it is. You have to see for yourself how much is going to fail you and fail you and fail you. And it's because the purity of the church shows us and portrays for us the power of the gospel. And so going into verse 6 here, there's a couple things I want to note, note, or three things here. He says, your boasting is not good. And you can tell, like, he's saying this in, in a fatherly sort of way. Because earlier in chapter 4, Paul has said, I'm, I'm basically your father. I started the church here, and I'm this father figure for you guys. And in chapter 3, he's already said, you guys are spiritually immature. He says, I wish I could refer to you guys as mature, but you're not. And so he says... It's very fatherly. He's like, guys, your, your boasting isn't good. Don't you know that a little leaven, little yeast, leavens the whole lump? And it just spreads, and it's going to spread all across. He says three things we need to do. Cleanse, calibrate, and celebrate. He says we need to cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. You're actually pure. You guys just aren't living that way. And he's reminding them of the truth of that, that as the church, the bride of Christ, you guys are actually pure. So act like it, live like it, cleanse out the old leaven. And he's not just talking about this guy. He's talking about all of them here. He's like, those ways, those, that sinful nature, those ways, they have no part in, in who we are today. He says, cleanse it out. For Christ, he says, calibrate on Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Start with Jesus, he's saying. Like, just recenter yourselves on Jesus. He was sacrificed for this very thing for us so that we don't have to live like that anymore. And then the third thing is, he says, let's just celebrate. Therefore, celebrate the festival. He's referring back to the, the Passover and, and Christ being the Passover lamb. But every day we get to celebrate this. We get to celebrate that we are made new in Jesus. And he says, our lives shouldn't be one that we're living in the muck. It should be one of celebration. This always reminds me of the, the passage of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son 
it's this, it's this, past, it's this parable that Jesus, talks, that Jesus shares with a group of people. And, and he says, a guy had two sons. One son wants his inheritance, and he gets his inheritance, and he goes, the younger brother, and he goes and just spends it on wild, reckless living, the Bible says. And then he runs out of money, and no more money. And there's a famine in the land, and he starts having to work for a, a guy who has pigs. So a couple things here. These guys are Jewish, and he's working for a guy with pigs. So he's working for a guy who isn't Jewish because they want to have pigs. So he's working for a Gentile. Uh, he's working for someone that wasn't considered God's people at the time, right? So that's like a slap in the face. Two, he's working with pigs, and he's feeding the pigs. And that's like the low of the low for, for them in that society. And he's so hungry that he looks at the pig's food and he's like, man, I want that. And then he wakes up. He hits rock bottom and he wakes up and he's like, what am I thinking? My dad, I'm just going to go back to my dad and, and, uh, and ask for his forgiveness. I'd just be one of his servants because his servants are treated way better than this. And he goes back and his dad's waiting there with open arms for him to return. And his dad's been waiting there the whole time for him to come back. And this is... The point here, reconciliation, restoration, salvation is the point of doing this, to bring someone, to bring this guy or whoever it is back into the body of Christ and show them that we want you here. And he says, so let's celebrate this. And the celebration is going to show them that this is way better than anything they're going to find in the world. And so let's celebrate it, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity, and that word literally is um, like purity or clarity or cleanness, um, sincerity and truth. And so for us as a church, what kind of church do we want to be? Some of you guys might still be thinking, a little bit uneasy about the passage and, and, and me thinking, well, how do we, how can we cut people off like that? I mean, shouldn't we be welcoming? Aren't we a welcoming church? Don't we have a big front? Don't we want everyone to come, come in here with us and, and to be in community with us? How are we going to reach others if, if we're not like that? Um, you know, shouldn't we love others? Like, how is this loving to others? A lot of times in, when we ask that question, it's not that it's a bad question. How do we, why, why shouldn't we be loving others? Shouldn't we be doing this? It, it, it just may be poor time, poorly timed. It's not in the right order. The Bible sets a, a paradigm for us in terms of love. Yes, we want to be a community of love that is welcoming, that is, that is showing people the power of the gospel. Uh, at the same time, we're a church that represents the purity of the gospel, the purity of Christ. Right? So the Bible, the paradigm in the Bible is love God and love others. Love God and love others. When we flip that, love others and love God, now we're viewing God through the lens of loving others. The Bible says we can't love unless we know how to love God first. We only know how to love because God loved us first, and he teaches us how to love. If you start with loving others, you may never get to the love of God. But if you start with loving God, you're always going to love others. 
And that's why when Jesus says, what the, when someone asks Jesus what the greatest commandments are, he says, love God with everything you are, heart, soul, mind, strength, and love others like they're, like they're yourself. Because now you know who you are in God, you know who God is, and you know how to love somebody else. And when we put loving others before loving God, we, f- we feel uneasy in passages like this sometimes. Because we forget, like we're saying, God is holy. We forget that as a church, we represent something greater than ourselves. We forget that as a church, the world is looking at us and they're saying, I don't want that because of the way we live. We forget those things. But if we put God first and love God and learn how to do that, we're always gonna learn how to love others well. So that hopefully, we don't get to this point that Paul and the Corinthian church got to. I can guarantee you Paul would have rather not have gotten to this point. Um, But in God's providence, it teaches us something and it shows us something about who God is and who we're supposed to be as a church. So let's look at the last few verses here. Actually, before that, um, yeah, pull up Romans 8. Let me read to you Romans 8. This is is Paul who wrote Romans 8, and I'm just going to walk through this for us because this, this encapsulates so perfectly what's happening here in this passage. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just sit on that for a second. How beautiful is that? If you're a follower of Jesus, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So even for this person who called themselves a brother, who was living in sexual immorality, he's like, all we want is restoration for you. We want to bring you back in. If you're in Jesus, there's no condemnation. Verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. It's just natural. And flesh here is referring to the sinful nature. But those who live according to the spirit, what should be natural for them is that they set their minds on the things of the spirit. This is 1 Corinthians chapter two, which we've already gone over, that we have the mind of Christ. Verse six, for to set the mind on the flesh is actually death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Verse seven, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And it's not only that those in the flesh can't, it's unfair for us to hold that standard to them, and I'll talk about that more in a second. You, however, in verse nine, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All this is, all this theology on the spirit and life and the flesh and death is behind what Paul is talking about here in First, in first Corinthians chapter five. And that's why he says, says uh, the destruction of the flesh needs to happen in order that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So let's go to verses nine through 13 and we'll finish up here. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter, so he references a, a different letter that I talked about earlier, not to associate with sexually immoral people. What I want you to, to, to look at as we go through this is that Paul isn't honing in on any specific sin. He's not even talking about a specific instance of a sin. He's talking about someone who has succumbed to a, and submitted to a lifestyle of sin. Okay, so sexually immoral people, not someone who had uh, committed a sexual sin at one time and that's it. Sexually immoral people, this is a lifestyle. Verse 10, he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers, idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. So this is for the church, remember? He's, saying, he's not saying, don't associate with anyone who lives this lifestyle um, because then you couldn't even be in the world. Of course, you have to associate with, with all kinds of people. Of course, you want to be friends with, with all kinds of people. Of course, how are they going to ever know Jesus if we're not showing them and pointing them to Jesus? Of course, we're, we're going to be, uh, we're going to associate with them. But in verse 11, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, remember this lifestyle, someone who has submitted themselves to this lifestyle, but says, no, I'm, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. And, he's, and he says, don't do that. He says, not even to eat with such a one. Remember, this is, this is communion here. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, he says? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That sounds really harsh, that last statement. He's like, I'm gonna leave you with this. Purge the evil person from among you. <laughs> um, it, when you put it in context, you'll, you'll, uh, you start to understand. So, a um, couple things here. One, Paul has two groups. There's the outsider and there's the one who considers themselves a follower of Jesus. There's different standards there. It's unfair for us to put the standard of the Bible on the outsider, on the one who doesn't believe in this truth, the one who hasn't, uh, the one who doesn't know about this truth, the one who has uh, rejected this truth. Because here's the reality: none of us can can showcase or portray the purity of the church apart from the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Okay, none of us can do that. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, like, you, can't, you can't showcase any purity because we're all, we're, we're all dealing with this sinful nature. We're all dealing with this fleshly issue. We're all still on this journey of faith together where this, this old self needs to be put away and, uh, put away and crucified. 
And so it's unfair for us to look at the world and say, you need to do this, when inside the church, we're not even doing that. And we can't judge those outside, Paul says. He says, we're to judge those inside the church. We're to hold each other accountable. And we hear judge and we're like, ugh, I don't like. But he says, we're supposed to hold each other accountable. And he says, if you did that yourself, in, in chapter 11, he's like, if you could just do that yourself for your own person, then no one else would have to do it for you. But you can't even do it yourself. So that's, that's where we come in and we help you do it. He says, we carry one of those burdens. We love one another. We serve one another. We rebuke one another. We teach one another. We give words of wisdom to one another. We, we build one another up. Sometimes we have to tear down in order to build up. Sometimes we have to say, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to do this. Um, but it's all in a spirit of gentleness. It's all in a spirit of love. It's all in this entire context that, that I just laid out in Romans 8, where the spirit is transforming us and he's doing something in us. And then he says, purge the evil person from among you. And this is a direct quote from the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy repeats this phrase over and over and over and over again. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is why this is so important. Because what ha what's happening in Deuteronomy is the people of God are about to enter the promised land. They're about to cross the Jordan into the promised land. And they're going to show the world the light of the glory of the gospel. And they're gonna, they're this messianic vehicle for the rest of the world. And in order to do that, uh, Moses says to them, you have to be a certain way. You have to show them why they would even want to do this. And so he says in verses five through eight, which is one of the hinge passages in all of the Bible, I believe this passage actually unlocks the rest of the scriptures for us. He says here to the people, he says, See, I've taught you statutes and rules that the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land and keep them. He says, Do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all of this, they'll say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And it's to show who God is. And the people of God have always done this. They've always shown who God is. And how can we show the beauty and the grandeur of God if we're in the muck with everybody else. I heard someone say recently, an influential person, an influential leader in the Christian world say, the problem in the church is that we look less and less like the culture. And I was like, no. The problem in the church is we look more and more like the culture, not less and less like it, our, our goal isn't to make this message so palatable that our culture says, oh, it looks like us, so we want to accept it. Paul says that this message is foolishness to those who are perishing in chapter 1. He says because it is the power of God to those who are being saved. And that's what we get to show. We get to show that this is the power of God. And yes, we want to... We 
the, the whole reason I'm preaching a sermon is to, to help you understand the scriptures. Of course we want to do that. We want to lead people in that. Of course we want to make certain things relevant for people and, and connect it with their lives. But our goal as a church is not to look more and more like the culture. That's why you'll never see a bunch of crazy lights up here um, as long as I'm one of the pastors here. <laughs> you'll never see a smoke machine because we're not doing nightclub here. We're just here to showcase uh, Jesus and point people to Jesus. And we're here to show you the, that that's the power of the gospel. That in the, in, in the purity of the church, we can see the gospel's capability, its effectiveness, its ability to transform lives. I mean, think about it. Is not, is not the grace of God more meaningful and more powerful than your sin? Is not your identity in Christ greater than your jealousy or, or your envy? Is not Jesus more satisfying than your sexual desires? That's what we get to show the world. Is not love and forgiveness more meaningful than your quarrels and your grudges and, and uh, your, your um, I'm blanking on the word, but your grudges? Is not forgiveness greater than that? These are all things that we've received from God. These are all things that we've received in Christ Jesus, and these are all things that we get to give out. In our BLG on Tuesday night, Cecile pointed out a tremendous truth. She said, she said that it's amazing how one person's sin, one sinner, leavens the whole lump, can ruin the whole thing. But how much more amazing is it that one person takes away the whole, all the sins of the world. And that's who we have in Jesus. Someone who is pure and perfect and who came in love and grace. Someone who didn't come for those who are well, but came for, for those who are sick, the sinners. He got accused all the time of hanging out with the tax collectors and the, the prostitutes and uh, even the Pharisees. Uh, and in order to show them why he came, that they needed somebody like him to bring them back to God. They needed him. And that's where we are as a church. And don't ever forget that, church, that we're not better than the rest of the world. The only difference between us, us and them is the Spirit of God who's transforming us daily on the inside to the outside. And in that, we get to show the power of the gospel to the rest of the world. And we get to say, it's not us, it's only him. And we get to point people past us to him. And so as a church, that's what we're gonna do. That's our mission and our vision in our city, identity and destiny in Christ in order to influence our city and the world. So I invite you this morning to step into that if you're a follower of Jesus if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what 
you can have. That's what Jesus is offering you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that sin, yes, is debilitating, is, is um, it wrecks our lives, but you have shown us a way out of that. Thank you that you've given us Jesus to show us that he is the way out. Now we don't have to do anything. Now we don't have to do the cleaning. That his blood does that for us. That his sacrifice is our sacrifice. That his life is our life. And so renew us today to be the church to be the church that is pure and holy and blameless, not just in your sight, but in the sight of our city, so they would see the power of the gospel and desire it and want it. So do your work in here this morning. Draw us to you. As we celebrate you, Jesus, remind us that your body was broken for us, and we celebrate that with the bread. Remind us that your blood was shed for us, and we celebrate that with the cup. And we declare that over ourselves this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.